You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Fox Hills Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Veronica will introduce our guest in a moment, and I can tell you that you want to listen on to find out what she has to say about all the things that first home buyers really need to know, the risks, the traps, and the mistakes we can make to the most important decision on your investment property journey. If the bank does get a little bit nervous and they reappraise that valuation on that property, and that valuation is lower than the 80% LVR, it is possible you may have to scratch together some money to top up. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. This week, we are picking the brains of Megan Hetherington, Director of Brisbane Buyer's Agency Property Pursuit. With a Master's in Business Admin and degrees in Psychology and HR, or Human Resources, as well as having experience as a licensed real estate agent, Megan has an acute grasp of both contract and property law, as well as an appreciation for both the emotional and logical drivers of purchasing a property. Perfect guest for the elephant. And of course, we'll be encouraging her to share her insights with us today. In recognition of her expertise and high standards in the fast-growing buyer's agency industry, Megan was engaged to develop and deliver the education module for the REIQ course called Acting as a Buyer's Agent, interestingly named course, and is current chairman of the REIQ Buyer's Agent chapter. Now, in her 15th year of business, Megan and the Property Pursuit team have purchased over 650 properties in Queensland for home buyers and investors. And today, we're going to do a bit of a deep dive into a segment of the market we haven't focused on before, first home buyers. Welcome, Megan. Hi, Veronica. Hi, Chris. How are you? Hi, Megan. Good to see you. Thank you uh, for having me. No, we love you here. First home buyers. I'm excited about this conversation because I do do a lot of work in the first home buyer space. Mm. Um and what's going to make the biggest impact on your financial future is getting that first property right. And you can so easily get it wrong. I think you can. And there's so much that you have to do in preparation for actually even getting to the point of being able to buy the property, yeah. isn't there? You know, yeah. you, there's conversations with you around how to get yourself financially prepared and pre-approved. There's a, there's a lot of gaps in knowledges and in knowledge for first home buyers. And it's really hard for them to know where to go to get the information that they don't even know that they need. Well, firstly, they go to their parents. And it's often the first place or perhaps a, a colleague at work or someone who may have bought a property or or just has a general interest in it. And, and there's so much media, I think, that that um, has different opinions and depending on which which direction that opinion is being swayed, you could actually pick up all of the wrong information and, and, be, and, and be directed in the wrong yeah. direction. Well, it's pressure just to buy. Like, you know, when I say go to the parents, it's generally the opposite way around. You know, my experience is people in their 20s and 30s, the parents going to the kids and saying, you need to buy. Like, you, you need to get on the property market. Oh, really? You, you so they're driving to, it. Oh yeah, lots of the time. Like you know, and I, I can see Do it. Do you know the average age is actually for first home buyers is actually increasing as well. 
so it was around 27 in the early 1990s and then went up to about 29 in the, the early 2000s. And as at December 17, the typical first home buyer was 31. Mm. So I think mm. mum and dad are pretty much ready to push them out of the nest by oh, then. Oh, for sure. Mm. <laughs> well, I mean, that's probably, you know, kids are later, marriage is later. So that's probably part of it. And then probably the second part of it is, I imagine, is, is just savings and the deposit required. There's other opportunities as well. I know when I came out of, of, of school and went to university, I sort of came out and I was very ready to establish my career and really get in there and quite ambitious. And I think there are so many more opportunities to travel, to experience things yep. that don't, don't necessarily yes. have you wanting to have your roots down very hard, very quickly. Mm. Mm. Um, and I think that change in the psyche of home buyers is I can do it later. Well, also yeah. think of the cost of travel, right? How cheap is it to get a flight to London now? This is what it was when I left school or when you left school. You're a bit younger than me, so <laughs> you'd be you'd be doing a heck of a lot of bar work and, and retail yeah. sale, you know, that that sort of environment to even get enough money to get on a plane. Um, but if you get onto some of the some of the really cheap flights at the moment, my God, I think I saw one to Hawaii the other day for three hundred dollars mm. or something. Oh you know, sign me up. Should you um <laughs> should every first home buyer should it be this obsession though to buy? Should it should you be bit more, well, I'll do it when it's right for me. Or is it a case of sooner the better? Like there's this attitude where you've got to get on the market, you've got to get on the ladder. But is that really true? I think it's it's very individual. And I think we need to step away from a holistic approach to first home buyers and look at each person and their individual circumstances. There are different career paths and different paths that people take that aren't going to put them in a position where they're financially or emotionally capable of being a homeowner yep. until much later in life. And personally, I don't believe that everybody should own a property. Mm. It may not fit with their goals. It may not suit with their capabilities. There are yep. people who, some people who just, just are really financially incapable mm. of managing that level of debt. It's, yep. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because the thing is that if you've got this national psyche that you, you've really only made it if you own your own home. Which is crazy. It is crazy. But it also does push people into buying some awful stock, so awful properties. Just you know. to get in, just to get a just foot so on the ladder. Yeah, just yeah, so the, they can say they're on it. desperation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. To be part of the conversation that people are having when they're at the barbecue or yeah. when, when other people are talking to say, well, yeah, I, I do own a home and, and it is you know, perhaps a one-bedroom unit in West End. But, you know, it's, it, 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 there's, a, there's a feeling of fulfilment, I think, when you can mm. participate in social conversations like that. And yeah. that supports the property market you know like while it's still I you know personally believe it's it is a bit crazy to think you're not successful in life and you're not you know you know successful person if you don't own a property you know it's just crazy but you know a lot of people do feel like that a lot of parents make their kids feel mm, like they're not successful yeah. unless they've got a property I think there's a disconnect between the understanding of the parents and and the other financial vehicles that you can use to achieve financial success yeah. as well you know the the stock market is generally something that you have to have very good knowledge of and most individuals who engage in the stock market, whether it's through managed funds or direct share investment, they consult professionals yep. and they're prepared to pay a fee to invest 10 or 20 or $50,000 into yeah. the stock market. Interestingly, that's not always the case and is, is in a low percentage of cases where homeowners or even investors are involved. You and I, Veronica, have had many conversations about the value of professional advice, not in terms of, of its, its dollar value in outlay, but in its terms of its return on what it is that you do or don't buy. Sometimes what you don't buy is even more valuable than what you do buy. I, I would has it even more times what you don't buy. That is is more has more of an impact on your financial future yep. than what you do buy than what you decide mm. to buy. Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. Like you, you, you shouldn't just be 
like rushing out and buying something, going, I bought something like that, actually waiting or waiting for a better asset or saving more or waiting till your income goes up. You know, that's to me is more powerful sometimes than actually just owning something and having to sell it five years later. I think individually it's about being ready to buy at the right time yeah. and yes. then making the commitment when the time is right for you, not when the media says the time is yeah. right, not when the charts say the time is right, not when, when a real estate agent, when your parents trying to, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and there's a lot more rent vesting now too. So people aren't necessarily seeking that home to own and have mm. um, a permanent base for themselves. They actually want to be a bit transient and a bit able to move around from a, from an, a home perspective. But then there's a great majority of people, 67% of households in 2011 census are owner-occupied. That's down a little bit from the previous Uh census of uh, 70%. So there is a little bit of a a decrease. Uh One might argue there's an affordability factor there. I think there's also an attitudinal change there as well, that people don't necessarily feel that need to live in their own home. I think it's all good for millennials don't want to own a home, et cetera, like that. As soon as they get to an age and they meet someone and, you know, and let's say they're, they're a couple that wants kids and they have kids, um, it pretty much goes from priority number seven to priority number one. And, you yeah. know, they want stability. They want security. They want to know their kids are going to get to, you know, meet other kids in the area. They're going to form relationships. You know, the kids are going to have stability it's through schooling. life stages, isn't um, it? You know, you know and that's all human emotions yeah. getting straight to the front. And it might be when they're pregnant. It might be a year before, you know, when they've just got married. But, you know, it. I think that's what happens. You know, they say that millennials don't want to buy homes, but it's because they're not at age now where they really want a home, you and know. you yeah, are a millennial, aren't you? Yeah, well, I am. So, so, so you're not talking out of your hat here? <laughs> no. Yeah, and I can, it's, it's, rent vesting is, is a, is a funny concept that's been brought up and it's been, you know, an option because of negative gearing and it's been an option because of big borrowing capacities because you could in the past, and this is not now, like two, three, four years ago, not long, you could gear your income much further into investments than you could into owning a home. So if you are a couple or even if you're a single and you're earning like 200 grand, you could have gone and bought $2.2 million of property as investments if you had the deposit on your income, but you could have only bought a house to live in for maybe 1.2. Mm. And, and mm. this is because you're factoring in rental income as well. Uh, well is, just that, is that right? Correct. The yep. way that the servicing calculation worked was much more aggressive, mm. much, much more. Now in that's now come down to you could, whether you're buying a house or whether you're buying an investment, you can basically borrow the same and sometimes less as if it's an investment. So the servicing calculators are much lower. So that might swing millennials more towards home ownership rather than as opposed to investment. 100%. Yeah. Mm. Because you could buy, let's say $2 million of property versus, you know, $1.2 million of properties. So you could buy much more. And then secondly, you could run a loss and that loss would be tax deductible mm. with negative gearing. Now, mm. the two things that are a bit worrying at the moment is, well, secondly, your borrowing capacity is about the same. And the big negative is if you go the rent vesting model, it means you don't own a home, which means you don't get CGT discount, which means your investment, you pay capital gains tax on. Asylum. And then the other thing is, is that, you know, they, who knows what happens with this election with negative gearing. Mm. But if that goes, there's your, there's your, your rent vesting model pretty much. It's ruined. certainly one of those hot topics that is discussed at length almost every election cycle, isn't it? Mm. We, we see that get rolled out. Yep. 
time and time again and and it does have an impact sometimes on the market it does put a little bit of a a slowdown on some people's decision making mm. not because of their incapacity but purely because of negative sentiment mm. um it'll be interesting to see what what comes out of the back of it but this is actually quite an interesting topic the idea of negative gearing being an issue that impacts on gen y or millennials because you know it, it's been put out there particularly by Labor, as being, you know, the, the fat cat property investors yep. and those, you know, those people ripping off first home buyers, for instance, and, and those people. Taking away their opportunities from them. Yeah, yeah, those yeah. people, those investors that are ruining affordability for first home buyers, but yet if negative gearing actually offers first home buyers an opportunity to rent vest, yep. then that's actually something that um, that needs to be talked in the context of first home buyers. But not only that, because the thing is, and this is one thing that really, really upsets me with first home buyers, or, or not with them, but with the system, is that first home buyers are encouraged to buy brand new. Yeah. Well, that that's the basis of increasing the level of housing stock. So, so it's not to decrease the the number of established homes. Oh, 100%. But I, I had a look at the different incentives that are offered around Australia <laughs> in the different states. Uh, you know, I don't want to get off track here, but seriously, if you live in the best state is Northern Territory, so incredibly generous, $26,000 yep. first home owner grant to buy or build new, stamp duty concessions up to 20, uh, just under 24000 Wow. They also, for first home buyers, have a household goods grant of up to $2,000. And a home renovation grant of up to $10,000. So there's some fairly serious incentives there and that's the only state that offers any type of grant or incentive for first home buyers to buy established. Oh, oh wow, that's interesting. So, um, so all states have different levels of um, exemptions and concessions and, and at different levels, but mm, Northern Territory is the is only one. Is the most one. generous, yeah. which is fair because it is the one state where... It's an attra- well, it's an attraction mechanism as well. It yeah. is a way to 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 get first home buyers to perhaps relocate to the Northern Territory yeah. or keep their young workforce local. Mm. Unfortunately, if I'm a property seller and I live in you know, well, I'm offering properties in the outer suburbs, like house and land packages, or if I'm uh, selling new units, I'm going to use that as a, a leverage tool to get someone to buy. So, you know, if someone comes in and you go, you're oh, a cutthroat f- developer over there, Chris. Well, it's, it's pretty much <laughs> what they're going to be doing. And I've gone through the sales process to, you know, humor myself, to be honest. Um, and you, got did you? Multiple times, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, um, oh, my God, that's so funny. I mean, I did in Bondi once. That was you quite funny. You got nothing else on, to do on the weekend or something. No, I've so done so a just few set, times. set the scene for us here, Chris. <laughs> yeah, do, what did you do? On. You put your rental property up for sale. <laughs> no, I've um, I've gone in into developers and pretended I was a buyer. Ah. And, um, You're masquerading. It, yeah, and I've done it a few times and just to experience it and see what, like, how it happens and, What's the pitch? You know, how do, how are you going to get someone to buy? What's the most interesting pitch that you were offered or incentives that you were offered? Well, one was in a shopping center, which was quite funny. It was, that was, uh, and it was all about Chinese developments and it was all about money. And she talks about all the Chinese money coming in and she just blew my mind with all these figures. The one in Bondi was, yeah, around first home buyers and, you know, cash all the stamp duty exemptions. And, you know, and basically what, what will happen though is that if, if you're a, walking in there and they say, well, you're a first time buyer. I know you're getting this grant. They know that that's, you've got money, right? And they're going to start using that. Okay. Well, well, you've got already 20%, 20 grand from the government. You're just going to need another 20. Um, you're going to have to not pay any stamp duty. 
And so what the government's really doing is allowing the developer an easier sale. Mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately, you know, my whole view on this is the government's basically stitching up the next generation mm. because what they're doing is they're saying, look, don't look at established, go look at new. And it's amazing. And that they're, they're just uninformed investors because they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, we're starting to see, and now what the government's doing is with the Royal Commission and with potential negative gearing, the properties that are going to fall the most out of this are the properties where the grants were new property. I think they're misdirected. I think that, I think the, the, the underlying desire of the policy at the time was probably quite genuine, but over time it's been misdirected and it's been railroaded by the affordability debate and also the supply debate. Uh, but it, interestingly, I, I, well, yeah, I back to the say rest some of the, yeah, look, there's, there's, um, the concessions are, are a really interesting thing, um, because it provides a monetary incentive to direct people to a certain property type. The thing that alarms me the most um, when I talk to first home buyers and I talk to other buyers agents who work with first home buyers and mortgage brokers is the alarming lack of knowledge that first home buyers have mm. that they don't actually know that they don't have. Yep. Mm. So it's the gap between their competence level, if you like, and what they perceive to be their competence level. And a recent survey of first home buyers by ME Bank found that 61% of first home buyers failed a very basic property knowledge questionnaire. Mm. And that's despite 70% of the respondents feeling very confident about making a financial decision yeah, as right. big as buying a property. Wow, and some of it, yeah, and, mm. and, that, and that's right. And, mm. and, and often when people are in an um, unconscious incompetent state, that is, they don't know what it is that they don't know. Yeah. Every they can feel overconfident. Yeah. yeah. Dangers are massive. Danger mm. Will Robinson, you know, the risks are far greater when you don't know what it is that you don't know. Mm. And some of the things that, that were revealed was that 85% of first home buyers in this survey of a thousand first home buyers did not know there was no cooling off period with an auction sale. Mm. So, so think that through. They've mm. prepared themselves for an auction. Hopefully they've spoken to their broker and they have pre-approval and they are right. Hopefully they've done building and pest inspection. Hopefully they have had the contract reviewed by a solicitor. Yep. Hope, hope, hope. They stand up at an auction Ooh. and go, oh, maybe we shouldn't have done that. Well, at least we've got the cooling off period. Mm. Bow, bow. Yeah, you I mean, I imagine there's a whole list of things that first home buyers don't know what they don't know and you 78% know 78% don't know you've got to pay the deposit on auction day yeah yeah no it, it doesn't surprise me I mean there's lots <laughs> of questions that we go through in that first you know two to three months when getting ready for bidding at auction or going I think to preparation is far greater yeah. a process than actual buying I think that the art the, the process of arming yourself with the knowledge through the right people through the right experts where do you go I, I think you know what I'm going to say, don't you? Mm. You pay for the advice that yep. you get. Yep. And if you're getting advice free or from people who have an ulterior motive, then the value of that 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 advice is exactly what you've paid. Mm. Well, you are actually paying. You're just paying in ways you don't yet know. Yeah, probably well, the, the opportunity, opportunity cost, cost yeah. is the yeah. greater cost. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of my frustrations with you know mortgage brokers and mortgage brokers probably hate this, but it's also a challenge for you to – you know, become a broker that's not just a broker that sells loans and rates. Mm. You become more of a trusted advisor, someone who actually coaches them and educates them. Now, your clients are going to love you a lot more. You're going to provide a much better service. And, you know, it's educating them and talking to them about their... Well, I, know, think, oh. I think specialisation is far more important than generalisation. Yes. I think yep. 
a mortgage broker is incredibly well versed in what to do from a financial perspective and preparation for right loan type um, offsets, all, all the structure that's unique to them. I think it's really important in this day and age where there's access to a lot of general information that that person is a conduit to an expert in the area. Yeah, oh, and if that's about asset selection, then the expert that that person needs to consult is a buyer's agent. Yep. And a buyer's yep. agent is the only one who is actually going to sit down and look at the goals and the, the budget and the, the location desires and the feature desires of a first home buyer and have a discussion around realistic expectations, where they can afford what it is they want to afford and where their compromises need to lie. Yeah, I mean, that's all good and well, but unfortunately, when you look at a list, A, they don't know where to go to find a buyer's agent yeah. um, because it's not actually, it's not very well known. Like mortgage brokers it's are well not, known. It's you know, but there is, a, there is a Real Estate Buyers Agents Association of Australia is a fantastic place to yeah. start. And mm. anyone who's talking to a buyer's agent must only use someone who's accredited yeah. and appropriately licensed in their state. But yeah. when they do find one, then not many offer um, actual will want to help first home buyers on the actual nuts and bolts education unless they're going to use them. And a lot of first home buyers have got limited cash. And they can't afford. That's exactly right. Ten thousand, fifteen thousand dollars. You're right, and, and it's missing. It is missing, and and there's loads of info out there for investors. There's lots of courses, and a lot of a lot of courses, lots and of a lot of it's crap too. Just quietly, you've really got to once again be careful that there's nothing being sold to you at the end of it, other than a service, perhaps. Um, the thing is with the brokers, and I've seen a lot of first home or a lot of information that is offered for first home buyers to guide them through this does come from the banks and from brokers mm. and it's lots of online resources isn't there there, but is, it, there, there is a lot there's but a, a, a limit to how much that they, they can actually go yeah. through the whole process and a lot of it seems to be a part of their content strategy because let's face it clearly first home buyers are looking for information mm. because then they wouldn't create this stuff right mm. but it's what information is very skin skin deep really mm. that you know i've read a lot of it um and so chris what, you know, like I was looking at LinkedIn the other day and sometimes you go down that rabbit hole and there was, you know, yet another mortgage broker and it wasn't you. And I know that you have various qualifications in property too. I just put out that there for the listeners. Um, <laughs> but there are mortgage brokers that don't have any qualifications nor experience in property other than the fact that they've bought some themselves. Yep. And then they offer property seminars. Right. Now, I'm, I have Did a real... Buyers agents? No, I'm talking mortgage no, brokers. Yeah, I've seen quite a few. Yeah. Uh, mortgage advisor, uh, mortgage advisor, and property advisory type seminars. Yeah, well, without they can do partnerships as, with asset professionals. Yeah, well, no. I tell you, what, I saw one the other day, and I was digging into it, going, "Where does this come from? Where does this, this, I guess, this sense of that you have the right and the experience to be able to run a seminar called mm. a property seminar?" And I'm looking for this woman's qualifications, and mm. it did seem to come down to that she herself is an investor. Mm. And unfortunately, because the property market is not regulated, then there are people out there always, you know, all offering advice. Property developers and marketers mm. and spruikers offer advice all the time. They call it advice, but in reality, it's a sales pitch. But in this particular case, you know, this is this is a mortgage broker who is obviously selling her services. And I think what's complicated here is the fact that people don't pay a broker for the advice. Yeah. You know, there's a trailing commissions and that's all, you know, you can have lots of opinions on that. And it's, it's something that's been... Um, addressed in the Royal Commission and it'll be interesting to see what the recommendations are with the final report. But that aside, so a broker is standing up and obviously wanting to use this as an opportunity to, to, to grow her own email list or grow her yep. own you know, business and the broking is her business. And, and obviously people are borrowing money to buy a property. So it sort of stands to reason that you run a property seminar for first home buyers to give them advice on 
how to buy property yep. or what to buy. And, you know, there's there's nothing to stop people doing that. And, yeah, I mean, and I guess I know dangerous. what you're saying. Yeah, I get what you're saying. I think, I think, the, the, I think the information from a mortgage broker is invaluable. On but what it should be within their doing. scope yes, of, yes. Of, of expertise. Yes, that's, yeah. and that's the point I'm saying here. And, and, and I know that when you do And talk, as a team, you can actually pull together a number of specialists um, but I think trying to be generalist probably takes away from that core expertise yep. of, of what we as individuals and professionals in our own arenas can actually bring to, as a team, to a first home buyer. Yeah, I think there's a hard part is a lot of brokers don't know what they don't know, right? So it's just first home buyers don't That's know what exactly they don't know. Right. You know? And yeah. so I guess, the, you know, maybe a less dangerous route is to not get involved with, you know, someone's property decision and just facilitate what they want. But then these mortgage brokers are like, well, no, I want to do more than that. Um, and then they start thinking, well, I'll get educating and I'll start recommending. And then unfortunately, there's so many slope. hawks that yes. are, are waiting and to pounce. And podcasts. <laughs> are waiting to pounce on these brokers. And, um, you know, I hope he's listening, but there's, you know, one that goes out and- oh, Did you say hawks or books? Hawks. Oh, hawks. Oh, um, <laughs> you know, but basically, what you know, and I get it. And they, they call me and they'll say, well, look, you know, uh, I see you're a mortgage broker. Yep. And, you know, I, I see that you would help people buy property. Yes. Um, you know, have you got a solution there? Yes. Um, would you consider our solution? Well, what is it? And, you know, and it very rarely it does go down the new path. It's, you uh, know. So more from a developer. Yeah. Market, and marketing. even marketing themselves, but also buyers agents that, you know, you know, sit on both sides of the fence. One minute they're buying new, one minute they're buying established. And, you know, if you are a mortgage broker and you are trying to get educated on property advice, unfortunately, then you meet the wrong people. And mm. um, that's where I think where it goes wrong mm. is, uh, you know, so you kind of got to, you're dangerous. As soon as you start getting in there and you help people with those decisions, you've got to be a hundred percent confident that those relationships are actually amazing. But a lot of people haven't got, you know, brokers haven't got relationships with good conveyances or they haven't got good relationships with good accountants or, so you've got to then go invest and build the network. And, um, unfortunately well, a lot. It sort of starts from a realization that you don't know it all. And mm. unfortunately, when it comes to property, everyone's got an opinion. Mm. And so we all live in them. It's a great social conversation. Isn't, isn't it? Property? We all live in them and we mm. all think we're an expert. And also because the stakes are so high, when once you've made a decision a to buy point. certain certain investment or, or your own home, you're suddenly an expert because you think, well, you're not, you don't really want to consider that it might not have been a great decision. So therefore there's confirmation bias kicking in and there's lots of, lots of these behavioral biases that kick in. And so the first home buyer decides they're going to start saving their deposit and they get out there and they open their little mouth and they say, oh, I'm saving up for my first home. And I can imagine that everyone dies in with an opinion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think your key point there, and the, uh, you said that the, um, the cost is so big, I think, you know, and how, and if you get it wrong. And I think that's the key point here. The first property, you know, without doubt, and the first, you know, decision around property is without doubt the most important one. Because It'll either set you up or it will really put you on a backward path from which it will take some time to recover. Mm. So the selection of the wrong asset for a first-time buyer is just so imperative. Um, it's not the forever home. It's not, it's not the dream home. It doesn't have to tick all the boxes. It just has to be the right thing yep. to satisfy the needs. On average, people move around every seven or eight years. So... Um, and, and we talk about different life phases, what, what one might choose as um, a, a single household versus a couple versus preparing for a family, suddenly having a family. Yeah. They're different properties and, and even within the different states, I think that different household types 
are quite comfortable with different property types. In mm. Sydney, it's not unusual to have one or two children in an apartment, but you wouldn't often find that in Brisbane. Mm. Um, it, you know, it's much more sought after for some outdoor area land and, and, and that's affordable and, and capable of being achieved. Could you talk through those life stages a bit more? Because I think that's really interesting for our listeners to understand that, you know, as you get older, you, you know, your needs change. I think they do. And I, I think that... Um, what we sometimes try and do when we're making that really big decision as a first home buyer, and I, I remember buying my first home, I, I knew it was probably a, a three or four year plan. So what it was didn't actually worry me. Where it was and what it would do for me were my primary concerns. Um, now that's that's taking an investor approach to a home and that's thinking of my first home as an investment property. Um, I knew that that property wasn't going to be the same one that I lived in when I eventually met my husband and got married, it wasn't going to be the same property that I would live in and I wouldn't choose it as a property when I was to have children. But at 23, that that, that was the right. So, so in that first sort of phase of life, which is perhaps establishing yourself, getting your feet on the ground, I think being too idealistic about what it is that you're trying to achieve out of that first property is often to the detriment of it doing the best thing that it possibly can for you with the knowledge that you probably won't live there for a long period of time. Moving into that family, putting the roots down, establishing yourself, thinking about community, thinking about schools, that's often where people, we see people spending a greater period of time. Often once they're once their children are involved in schools and they're quite deep in the community, you develop relationships with people around you that you'd never anticipated that you would. And suddenly you have this village feel because of the school connections Mm. that it makes very difficult to move away from. And and sometimes it's that phase of home ownership that's the longest. The thing is, though, a lot of property actually loses their owner's money. Right, and every quarter, ten percent, give or take a little bit, in this country, sells for a loss. Mm. And the reality is that the biggest uh, portion of the entire property market that actually sells at a loss are first-time resale of off-the-plan apartments. Currently, that is almost across the board. Mm. Um, I've looked at some complexes in Brisbane where the average resale has been twenty-four percent loss over a four-year period, and this is wow. a particular inner city, quite a good complex, good-sized rooms, but largely two-bed, two-bath, investor stock and first-home buyer stock. Now, that's that's a big negative to take in as a first-home buyer to your second purchase. Destroyed you. <laughs> well, it's eaten up yeah. basically all all the work you did to get that's your deposit. deposit. That's your yeah. deposit and your that's on costs. well and truly your, your deposit. That's gone. It's yeah, your that's on gone. costs. It's the equity that you could have had from a different asset that might not have been in such a funky location. Yeah. Um, it might have had some different compromises. You know, we, t- we talk about, at, about compromises with first home buyers. In fact, any home buyer uh, mm. quite a lot. And those compromises sit in three main categories. It's it's the location the area, the suburb, the street that you want to live in. It's the, the features or the attributes of, of the property that you would like. And, and then it's finally the budget. And those are the three main things that people We call them the three P's. Is compromises the price, in. The property yep. and the position. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Smack on. Mm. And, and for some people, one of those things will be unchangeable and often it's budget. Yep. Yep. So then we need to talk to them at a, quite a deep level around what, well, okay, well, you might like to have a brand new unit with a gym and a pool and all of those sorts of things. But if you do that, let's look at historically what's that done and what the indicators are telling us it might do in the next five mm. years, which is your whole period, versus this a little bit less sexy but yeah. boringly solid and house probably will go up in, in value. Good <laughs> suburb. 
Where with do you want to be potential. in five years? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and talking through those compromises to help make really good decisions around the pros and cons as they suit that individual. Yeah. I mean, I, I do get this quite often and, um, you know, I do have to challenge clients on it because, you know, that's my job as an advisor is to, you know, educate and to expand their thinking and to think about things a bit differently. But a lot of first home buyers will, will say, oh, it's not an investment. I'm buying it to live in. Oh. Um, and, you <laughs> Anything know. Anything that involves the outlay of that much money has to have financial consideration. And that, that's exactly right. Like this is an investment. You are taking out a huge, you're leveraging your money tenfold and you're putting it into a, an asset and mm. that asset's either going to go up and down in value and um, it's an investment. Yes, you're getting the benefit of living in it, which is a tangible second element, but fundamentally you're, you're paying for it as an investment. And I, you've, I, I don't ever really buy into the, the logic of it doesn't really matter what happens to the value. But the fundamental need for shelter can be satisfied by renting. That, well, this is the thing. So, so in and of itself, buying a home without the investment or the financial considerations is better left to somebody else and pay the rent in the place that you want you, you, you want to live in. Look, I think, and, and this is something that first home buyers need to know, there are other alternatives as well, mm. of course. And also that idea of it doesn't matter because I'm going to live in it. Well, hang on, wait a minute. I, I, I do believe that people that say that haven't really considered that it could go backwards. Yeah. Yes. Maybe they're thinking it won't go up. They're thinking it's going to be the same as what they paid for it. They're not actually thinking, but you could lose your deposit. Equity. And the other thing I, I, I think as well, well, you could lose your deposit. But mm. the other thing is if the bank does get a little bit nervous and they reappraise that valuation on that property and that valuation is lower than the 80% yep. LVR, it is possible you may have to scratch together some money to top up. Yeah, yeah, to, yeah. Well, yeah. To, you're in a situation yep. where you have had negative growth. Oh, yeah. And no, it's... Um Breakup of relationships is probably the prime one that happens. Mm. Um, so, you know, we all well, think that we get together and we're going to stay together, yeah, but then, you know. Um, <laughs> Financial uh, pressure is one of the greatest and it yeah. is the cause of a lot yeah. of you know, internal. Mm. And you've got to be so, so careful. Um, I mean, I've got a client right now and, um, you know, they bought a place and it was going to be the future home. They're going to move back to Perth and they bought this place in Perth. And, um, you know, I, I personally wasn't, you know, confident that they're buying a great asset, but you know, they did and, uh, yeah, they broke up and, mm. you know, and it's been a battle. We still haven't fixed it where the price of the property has gone down mm. and, um, you know, the, the hoping of future growth in Perth and it hasn't happened. And when the train station comes and oh, et cetera, that, yeah. um, and <laughs> the, you know, and if you can th hold out for those things, that's fine. But you if you, there is a time imperative, she wants her money, got to realize he wants loss. to keep it. Uh, and the valuation of the property dropped quite significantly. And um, so there's only way to get out of this is to sell the property and which is you crystallize the loss or B, you pay down the mortgage and to 80% um, because you've got to get her off. You've got to get the other party off the loan. Well, she yes. wants to buy um, him out. Yeah. yeah and cause well, it's actually a lo change of loan contract. So there's mm -hmm. no way to get out of it. It happens also and it's extremely risky with guarantor loans um, where you get your mum and dad involved. Oh, yeah. oh yep. You'll help us buy a property. Well, then if the relationship goes sour mm. and you have to sell that property and there's a loss, who covers that loss? It's, it's mum so and dad. It's important to have exit strategies yep. and, and um, mechanisms in place and, and, and agreements in place. And that my first property mm. I did with my brother and my, my parents mm. who allowed us to use the equity in their home to borrow 110%. There's no way I could have got into a property at 23. I was on $35,000 a year if I hadn't had those mechanisms. But we had re really sat down and thought through and documented 
what would happen if. And, yeah. and, and the if happened. I got transferred to Melbourne and I had to sell my half. Yep. So we knew exactly what the choices were at that point in time. Which does take the pressure off if you're putting those in, in that situation where the worst happens or, you know, if it's a relationship breakup or whatever whatever triggers that enactment of whatever decision has Transfer been made. To, if, for a job. Yeah. And if you have that decision already made in advance, that, that takes the stress away or reduces that stress considerably. But, you know, there's – and, you know, I just keep going back to this sort of – brand new and off the plan thing because unfortunately it's not, it's not just state governments that are encouraging and the federal government now, you know, in terms of negative gearing and yeah. all the rest of it, mm. that, that are really encouraging first home buyers to go down this highly, highly, highly risky path. But think about then if you get your parents to go guarantor on a property that loses value. Yeah, I mean, you know, what are the implications oh. on on your parents? Mm, if, well, depending on their equity level and their yeah, their yeah, too, or if that's the only asset that, that they have. Oh, well, I reflect you got a story back, uh, to it. A girl I didn't work with uh, uh, five years ago, um, and she walked in and she said, "Look, uh, you know, I've just made all this money on off the plan, bought it, and then sold it pre off the plan, and she was very happy with herself." And then I was like, "Yep, that's great." And then she says, "Oh yeah, I'm using mum and dad's property for." Kind of guarantor, and she was basically going to use her parents' property to, you know, gear into off-the-plan property. She was going to do it again, yeah, because again. it worked for her once. Oh. Worked, and to kick it at this is, I was probably could be the Dumbo for the week, but kick her is she'd actually <laughs> bought two more properties with her parents, put her parents and her brother into an off-the-plan property because it worked for her. Um, and I just said, this is crazy. I said, you are gear, you're taking all this risk on your parents, not you, yeah. and your mum can't afford and. And she's Garen- done it once, so she's such a success story. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so, that's and, the risk, isn't it? When, yeah. you, when you hear a success for, story from oh, someone I else want a bit of that. whose circumstances just happen to be right at that point in time in the market and you will try to apply it to a different time, place or um, – just want to replicate time, it. You, you, mm. you, and it. And it doesn't fit within that square peg, doesn't fit in that round hole. Um, I think that's where sometimes first-home buyers can become – Terribly unstuck. Yeah. Yeah. So and guarantor loans. Uh, well, I, I told her advice. I said it was crazy. You said, I don't Did she follow this. your advice? No. Well, we never worked <laughs> together. Because, I mean, so you don't know what happened? No, I never, never heard. Because, I mean, and that sometimes does happen, but it, it wasn't, you know, I, I was just, I couldn't believe it. And with guarantor loans, I am ultra conservative with them. I, mm. Put, I have to find out what, tell me more about your parents' situation. Tell me about what they've got in super, what other assets they've mm. got. Have you got brothers and sisters? What's their situation? How close are you to retirement? Retirement because oh, there's yeah. risks there. You yeah. don't know, um, you know, is this property going to suit you long-term? What happens to the relationship? Like you've got to go through so many hurdles. Um, the problem is mum and dad want to help. Yeah. yeah and mum and dad want to help. And if child's want to, they want to facilitate. They don't want to say, you know, you know, son, you can't have this or daughter and it's a new relationship. They want them to get a nice home and everyone's pushing forward and no one stops them. And the bank, unfortunately, will help them. Uh, and the because bank does, the equity sits there and the guarantor relationship sticky for the is bank. there. Mm. And it's usually done at the bank that the, the uh, generally a lot of the older generation generally bank at the same bank and they love to oh, bank. Oh, of course they do. Yeah. You know, yeah. I've worked, I've been at Westpac for 20 years and they go into Westpac and then, or this is not nothing to Westpac or whatever bank, <laughs> but um, yeah. And then the bank just facilitates it yeah. because you've been a customer for so long and uh, it's all of a sudden the guarantor loan's done. And so you're right. I think what you point there before around people don't factor in a loss, they haven't because it's been a booms and they've just seen the market going up. They haven't thought it could be a loss, but I think only now people are consciously thinking, actually, the market's going backwards. There are so mm. many risks, aren't there? And I think the thing that yep. um, I just keep coming back to 
is that um, miss that 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 big gap between what first home buyers think they know and what they actually don't know, which is not their fault. Mm. No, it it's isn't. That the fact that there just is not a holistic way that they can access the kind of information that you and I, Veronica, have gathered over twenty years of mm. being in the industry, and that collection of experiences that make you go. I know that's not going to work for these reasons, but the indicators and the potential and and the fundamentals tell me that this is probably going to be a much more stable option for you. And and I think taking themselves from that unconscious incompetence and taking themselves through an, an upskilling and a and a gathering of the correct information into that point where they can be consciously competent when they actually go to a property, they inspect it, they know what to look for, what yep. what questions to ask, how to assess the information, how to validate the information. I think how to assess and validate the information is really key because there is a lot of information oh. out information there. From a lot <laughs> and, of yeah, different... you can get overwhelmed with what's out there, but recognising when it's got a, an interest that is not necessarily yours, you know, i.e. your best interests are not in the mind of the person giving the advice or the source of advice. And so certainly when you're getting advice from, you know, from online, from various sources, you know, if it's from the banks, you know, as I said, it's part of content strategy. I mean, it, it's not necessary. It could be good. There is such a thirst for information yeah. and content can come from anybody. Yes. And, and, and who's writing it? Often got, it's journalists that are writing it as well. They're not actually property experts that are writing from you it. Or I or, yeah. or Chris or a yeah. real estate agent or a developer or so that sort of commentary all gets pulled together in what might be considered fact or news yeah. um, without an understanding of what, what get, just get back to the basic process. Get back yeah, to the basic no 10 phases go. of the process well, of buying a property. full disclosure here, Megan and I are actually working on a little bit of a project. We do have a project. So please. we'll put a link in the show notes, which is going to be to a, to a survey because what we do want to understand is where are first home buyers getting information because all of our research shows that there's no one source of reliable. In fact, I don't think there's really any source of reliable information for first home buyers. I'll put it out there. I think that that is a big statement, but there isn't, you know, there's, you can get good advice on how to save a deposit. You can get certain advice around, you know, the what the the government uh, incentives are, but certainly governments can give you legislative guidance le on on what yep. your rights are as a buyer. Yep, yep. And there's there's but legislation doesn't protect you from yourself. No, it from doesn't. The <laughs> it doesn't. So there is certainly avenues where you can go to get specific pieces of advice, but pulling it all together and making sense of it, and the actual choice of property and the property buying process, that's the bit that I think is missing. Mm. And once again, you can get a lot of information from real estate agents' websites so yep. uh, and the franchises, for instance, and they'll give you lots of information. But you also got to realise that whilst they might be giving you information on, on the buying process of, of a property, they're also trying to sell your property. And it's often there's bits of information that are missing from there that are vital to making that, those good decisions on the right asset as well. Well, it's funny actually because, Megan, you used to be a, a real estate agent, a sales agent. I did do a so did I. Mm -hmm. And I know my own buying uh, process and my own filters that I viewed property through when I was a selling agent, very, very different than they are as a buyer's agent. And I still love property, mm. but before pre-BA, post-BA, um, before I was a buyer's agent, I honestly did believe that all property was good as long as you bought it at the right price. Yes. I yes. really did think that. I, I think that that's an underlying. Well, you um, wouldn't be an agent if you I, didn't think that. Well, true, but <laughs> I never even questioned day, it. The agent's job is to sell the listing that they have yeah. for the highest yeah. price that they can obtain. 
and there's there's no that's that's, that's their nothing job. to be ashamed no. of. That no. is just their job. Mm. But it is the buyer's job to know what questions to ask to assess whether that property is right for them mm. and at what price it is yeah. right. And I think it's that big gap that that we'd liked a little bit of feedback from buyers um, and 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 to participate in the survey that mm. we'll be putting the link out and getting out on social it's two media. Two minutes of your time, but <laughs> to uh, to gather and help us to really get that information out to first home mm. buyers in a in a way that is meaningful and and gives them the confidence to make the right decision about the asset that they're going to buy. Yeah, yeah. and I mean that's right. It's affordable like, access to the knowledge that yeah. you and I have gathered over time. Good information or good guidance at an affordable price. Yeah. How's that? I mean, the hardest part is for first-time buyers is that um, it's all very new and, you know. Exciting. All yeah, and, and they want to generally, they, you, when you start down a journey, we, we naturally, if you're a doer and you want something done, you want to achieve things, you want to mm. get it done. And the last thing you should be doing is rushing this decision. And so I think, you know, you need to get educated first. You need to take the time. You need to get multiple opinions. You need to think about all your different options. You need to get very clear on things, get a strategy, and then you go in. And unfortunately, a lot of first-time buyers, it's like, oh, we want to buy a house. Then they rock up at a display home and yeah. next you know they bought mm. some land. And that's kind of, it's not a great idea. So you need to. Then, then on the flip side, there's yeah. also analysis paralysis where you can yeah. be so overwhelmed by too much information and too many choices that the ability to actually commit to and move forward with the purchase itself becomes paralyzing. Yeah, yeah. I think there's obviously that as well. But I mean, generally speaking, if you can give yourself just a couple of months of, of just training and education and research, you don't need to do it for five years. But just, doing, it's like being a golfer, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, just a little bit of basic like a training. Golfer? A golfer. Yeah. You think that a golfer, you know, when you walk, when you're, when you're watching someone swing a club, you think, oh, that's beautiful. You know, like, oh, mm. I hit that ball beautifully. Mm. All right, I'll go up there. I'm going to look at the white ball down there. I'm going to concentrate on it, put my club in front of it, and I'm going to whack it. And you miss. After the second, third air swing, <laughs> bit of swearing, maybe throwing of the club, you realise mm. you don't know what you don't know. So mm. you go through this journey of moving from I don't know what I don't know mm. into, all right, I know I don't know things. I'm going to find who it is that's going to teach me. So moving yeah. into conscious incompetence. Mm. And then and through that process of enlightenment, you, you can then move into, all right, well, who are the people? Who's the coach? Mm -hmm. Who's the golfing coach that's going to teach me about um, where to position the ball, how to stand, what the grip should be, mm. my backswing and my follow through. Mm. How am I going to get that? And then you move into this state of, of consciously practicing those mm. skills. So learning to apply those skills to the point where it becomes a, 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 an, a, an unconscious competence. Yep. You know what you're doing, but you just got to make sure you don't let bad habits slip in mm. or you need to go back to your skills again. Yeah, no, I mean, I guess for a lot of our listeners probably aren't in their mid-60s and golfers, but, you know, I do oh, love that. Oh, tell love... me that you didn't <laughs> play golf in your 20s. <laughs> what about mountain climbing? Could we try a mountain climbing um, analogy? You know, it's sort of getting all the right gear in your in your, in your backpack. Yeah. And um, 20 kilos is going to... The might... first time you go out, you go with water. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, I do prefer the mountain, you know, nothing against the golfing. Uh, because I'm, there's... I'm a little bit older than you. Golfing. <laughs> Yeah, but you're not as old as I am. Worst thing you could do with golfing though is just miss the ball, right? And you go home and you go, oh, I didn't. Oh, you definitely wrap no, that no, club around a tree. No, no, you can lose ten or 
10 or 20 balls on, yeah. on a Oh, they're fence. expensive, aren't they? <laughs> but in mountain climbing, you can break your back. And so, and I think oxygen. Your, rocks, your risk of actually going and buying property is much more like mountain serious climbing. risk than, than golfing. Yeah, so we're not going to use the golfing analogy no. anymore. Sorry, Megan. Do we want to go with deep sea diving now? Or? <laughs> yeah, oxygen tank. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> Don't go with the snorkel. <laughs> <laughs>
was was taken. Anyway, yeah. sort of exploded, and then the office of fair trading was going to be bought into wow. it. But in at the end of the day, he didn't. It was yeah. it was sold to the lady who was on the phone, who was actively bidding, who was participating. And the Dumbo of the week was the bloke that sat out there mm. thinking that he was going to be the one that too cool for school, too cool for school. And his wife was hysterical. Oh, I imagine. Hysterical. I've seen the exact same thing. I've seen before. that happen too. Yeah. Not, not on a picnic blanket, though. No. I mean, that, they that, were that's, bored and uninterested in playing with the child. That's and theatre, isn't it? It was. Really. They were I mean, really trying just, to create yeah. this egotistical environment where they were going to be the one that came out at the end with this brave uh, bid. So I in love his you're the mind. Third umpire, though. You're like the cricket, you know, is it is it an LBW? You've gone to the I third like umpire. It's like a deer in the headlights. Yeah, me, oh. Megan Hetherington, is it out or not out? Um, I know what I know. saw, but I don't really want to be on the record. The one I saw was in Melbourne and uh, it was in Preston. It was a nice house and, um, you know, we are looking at the time and then this guy and he's cool and he's in his leather jacket and like slick back hair. He's yeah. got his girlfriend to the sides, um, you know, acting. They've got the glasses on, acting really cool. Gets to the end of the auction, you know, going through times. They hadn't bidded and then bang, you know, as just as he was about to put it down, screwed in 8.90 and... He's like, well, no, it's gone down. And the girlfriend just like stormed off, went beeline to the car. He kind of just stood there and went, what? And he's like, well, no, it's sold. And then he walked back to the car and I was like, I do not want to be in that car. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. So, so he's even missed the, the final call. The he's third missed call. it, yeah, completely. completely. And, and um, I was just like, oh, my God, I can't believe you just did that. Wow. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, great dumbo, I love it. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great Dumbo. And trying to outsmart and trying to establish, you know, your, you know, put your stamp yeah, on the whole thing and yeah. I'm better than you are and blah, 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 blah. So at the end of the day, it's the person actually bidding that bought mm. the property. Absolutely. <laughs> Did you ever see there was um, on, uh, I saw video footage of a bidder in Sydney, I think it was, and he just literally kept bidding himself. As in against himself, against himself until the property was was passed into it was um sold to him. to him. Yeah, I didn't just s- kept bidding against himself. I didn't see it was that a strategy. I have actually bid against myself because it's it's something I don't use very often. But there are times when I've used it, and that is because I think that person is going to keep bidding against me, and I don't want them to. I want them to think I'm a little bit insane. Mm. So I'll, I'll you know I might put my odd. I love an odd number. I like to sort of. <laughs> Play around. I've had auctioneers refuse my odd number bids and I'm like, oh, you know, really, can't you? They round it down. I've had them round it down, Mm. believe it or not. I don't go into the cents, you know, I don't even go into the 913. I, You know, I might do. Oh, I do. It does throw them 967. I'm not going to go $967,913. I'm not going to do that. But I will say 967,000 or 913 and they're all looking, it's really odd. You know, Mm. it is odd. One auction, I actually looked at, at other bidders' numbers and I just randomly, I said, oh, what's, what's your bidder's number? And there's bidders looking at me like, what, what? And I'm like, show me your bidder's number. And it was 13. I'm like, okay, well, I'll bid 13. And then the next one, and I'm like, oh, he's got 17. Oh, I'll bid 17. And they're looking at me like, nuts. <laughs> I've got my limit. It's freedom within the fence. I know how far we're prepared to go on that and how mm. I play that in, in between. You know, it's really up to how I read the situation. But, yes, I have bid against myself because I want somebody to stop. You know, yeah. but yeah, one guy on his own, not letting anyone else get a chance. Is that what it was it like? It was hilarious. <laughs> I've never seen anything to like it. To find it on YouTube. Is it on YouTube? Yeah, I think I can. I, I did post it on social media. So oh, yeah. I'll, I'll go back through yeah. the share it if you can find Yeah, it. Mm. I'll reshare it again. Uh, it'll it's be on funny. The I've got a client at the moment who missed out an auction on Sunday, which is 
you know, a bit unusual generally. It's usually on yeah. Saturdays, but it mm. was on Sunday. Um, and it's amazing property and it's very unique. Was it in unique. East Melbourne? Uh, no, nah, I can't really probably tell because it's still on the market, this uh, property. Um, so, you know, it hasn't, hasn't bought it yet. In, obviously. Has any missed out? Well, it's really interesting. So <laughs> it's, it's a cracking property, you know, but it's a bit unique, which is what makes it good. And, um, yeah, and it's basically passed in and it passed in 150 grand. So, you know, low sevens instead of high eights is what they want. Right. Mm. And he was the only bidder. And um, they did a couple of vendor bids and then they just stopped. Auction finished. So it's in Victoria because you can't do a couple of vendor bids in Sydney. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so, and, and, and vastly different rules. So Queensland, mm. you can have unlimited. Victoria, you can have unlimited. Mm. New South Wales, only one. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe it was just New South Well, it's in New South Wales. So it must only <laughs> be one. So one so vendor could bid. Catch yeah. me out. But, um, yeah, they basically, he's tried to negotiate after the auction and it's just not happening. You know, they want this and he's not willing to pay it. And they've gone back to the market now and it's back on the market. And, you know, I kind of feel like maybe, maybe, maybe it's, that's, maybe that's the solution there. Maybe it was only the one vendor bid. Look, yeah. you know, I, he um, couldn't bid against himself then, could he? Well, and you know, I've done that. The I've, I've couldn't increased... bid against him a second time. Yeah. Well, you can, I mean, you can increase your own bid. I mean, the, that... the, the bidder could, but the auctioneer could. Yeah. yeah. So he could have just kept bidding to a point where it was on the market. I mean, the problem is that most buyers don't know what to do in that situation. Mm. And so, you know, you've, you've got to, and this is what I say to all buyers, right? You need to know what your walkaway price is. And if we go back to our negotiation masterclass episode with Fiona McKenzie, do we know what number that was? It was in the 30s, I think. Um, so, you know, we did look back, listeners, Negotiation Masterclass, a fabulous episode giving you some great steps to go through preparing yourself for auction or for negotiation. And one of them is this idea of the least favourable outcome. And mm. the least favourable outcome is the, basically the maximum price you're prepared to pay before you walk away. And by knowing that, be super, super clear on that and stress testing and pressure testing that limit before you get to auction, it doesn't matter whether you bid against yourself or not because you know what it's worth and you know what you're prepared to walk away. And you know, you also have in your mind, well, if it's competitive, I'll go to that level. level. But if it's not competitive, I'm not going to go past X. And so by having that really clear in your mind, it doesn't matter if you bid against yourself because you know you're prepared to pay that if there's, if it's not competitive. I, I wouldn't bid against myself, but I would do an off-the-floor negotiation quite seriously with the owner to see if I, I can prefer get to pass time. it in and do that, absolutely. No, I would, yeah. I'd do it live. So I actually uh, I yeah. would much rather have be going back onto the floor after uh, after a behind-closed-doors mm. negotiation and see where anyone else is and get that property onto the market than to go back, be, you know, off the floor, private yeah. treaty negotiation, best and final offer, not knowing what everyone else is doing. I'd much rather see what everyone else is doing. It is a good point because the thing is that there is – and a lot of that depends on the agent, doesn't it? Because I – mean, And the auctioneer. And the auctioneer. Yeah. There are times when you know that you're going to be able to – look, pass it in. We just go away and negotiate. You know you're dealing with a decent agent. You can actually get a deal together. But in, in New South Wales, you've got first right of refusal for the highest No, bidder. you don't. You don't. It's is not – it's, it's Victoria? A, no, no, no. It's, Victoria. It's, it's said you – have it and you do have it but that's at the reserve price so yes. it's not really it, it's an it's a courtesy it's oh. not Whereas in Queensland it's open to everybody well it's open to everybody mm. in New South Wales as well mm. but so therefore you know you've got to you, you, you choose your moment I guess into mm. how you do that but sometimes I don't want I, some agents love to have the pressure on the buyer and so you're an experienced negotiator an experienced oh, bidder so you can deal with seller. that you can deal with that yeah. and I can deal with that too but I choose when I do it and when I don't do it but when they actually like to work with buyers under those conditions because that puts a hell of a lot of pressure on a buyer 
You it know? does, yeah. So and, and being able to manage that auction situation and manage mm. the adjustment to the seller's expectation, which is often what we need to achieve, yeah. is to actually get the seller to move off their reserve yeah. and meet the market during that auction so that we can buy it without having to go behind closed doors and make, make offers that, you know, maybe more than we could buy it at auction. Well, yeah, and there's those risks as well, that the cloak and dagger stuff. But the thing is that the, quite often with agents will come to you in an auction in New South Wales, and I don't know if it's the same up here in Brizzy, but they'll come to us in Sydney and they'll say, oh, well, you know, the vendor is prepared to move down from their reserve now if we buy it here under the hammer. But, you know, I know that their their price is going to go up again if we pass it in and negotiate. It's like, really? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's like the script and dialogue around uh, we've got, look, those people over there, they're waiting for it to pass in yeah. so that they can make a conditional offer. Oh, I know. And you just go, oh, my yeah. still going to want my unconditional offer. They're not going to want that one. <laughs> that's exactly right. You go, and, and, I, and I laugh because I think, did you really just say that to me? Like, because I've never heard that before. Yeah. I mean, at the day, it works. Unfortunately, urgency is something and scarcity. It's fear of, it's fear what, of loss. We, we just, unfortunately, we fall for it. You know, it's um, it's why it one works. day only. I keep doing it. I mean, it's why they do it because it must keep working. Uh, yeah. Discount now, but it will decrease uh, if you don't do it now. I mean, so. I, I, there's one financial advice organization that do this. They Every, you know, day it's in the paper and it's a half a page and, Oh, free SMSF review. Oh, I know. Who are you talking about? One day only. One week only. And it's like you've it's been like, doing this ad for it's five like, years. It's like the Persian rug store that's closing <laughs> down. Oh, it's constantly closing down. Or Moss River. Moss River, I think, finally has closed down. I don't know if you have Moss River yeah. up here in Queensland, but Moss River, the, no, you know, the towel and sheet rug. shop, rug which, shop which has been always. advertising <laughs> for years the final rundown sale. Four years. One day they're actually going to close and we're all going to go, oh, Ooh, didn't expect that. Oh, they meant it. <laughs> that was the longest shutdown ever. So it, that- it went through four tax years. Uh, <laughs> anyway, such an amazing episode. We really appreciate your time. Thank you Thanks very much. so much for having me. I'm sorry that Brisbane didn't put on its best weather for you. Oh, it's been raining the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it will be beautiful tomorrow. False advertising. <laughs> Perfect so one day, beautiful the next. Hot. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming in, Megan. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is. Some pitfalls that first home buyers need to be aware of when they're doing their research. Unfortunately, and and we've talked a lot in this episode about the fact that first home buyers are real easy targets for you know new and off the plan properties, and it's a real danger zone. And first home buyers, in particular, need to be extra extra careful because if you get this wrong, it can actually play havoc with your financial future. Now, one of the things. I really, really, really want first home buyers to be aware of is when you are searching online for information, I want you to be extra critical in looking at the source of the information. Now, in a way, I've talked about the information you can get on banks' websites and mortgage broking websites, et cetera. And to some degree, that's pretty safe. It's probably skin deep, but it's going to be barely safe. They're just trying to sell you finance. Be very, very, very careful about sites that are particularly targeting you and actually when you dig a bit into the site, what they're really offering is a sales portal for developments. That's the sort of thing you need to be super careful about. I don't want to give away what those sites are, but if you have, you know, if you take off the rose-coloured glasses, when you're looking at them, you could be extra critical as to, well, who is giving me the information in this site? What's the source? What's the direction they're pointing me in? If you feel that they are pushing you towards new stock, that's house and land developments and apartments, then get out of there. Don't take the advice in that site because it is 
designed to get you to buy a product, not to buy a service and not to advise you. So join us for our next episode when we interview Jared McCabe, a director at Wakelands Property Advisors in Melbourne. Now, Jared effectively does my job in Melbourne. And so I found it fascinating personally, understanding the dynamics of various suburbs, various directions, the inner and the outer rings and the middle rings, different price points, different types of properties, and also that topic that everybody talks about when it comes to Melbourne property, and that is oversupply fascinating episode really valuable stuff don't forget we're on all the social channels we're on facebook we're on linkedin we're on twitter or you can connect with us on the elephant in the the links are all there for you please connect and send us a message we'd love to hear from you the elephant in the room property podcast is recorded at the sydney sound brewery until next week don't be a dumbo Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.